Amen. In Jesus' name, uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I have a bed in my truck for gifts. <laughs> Just let me know so I can strap them down. We are in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 13. The Word of God, a lamp unto our feet to help men and women and children not to be as foolish as we otherwise would be without God's Word. Hopefully we, we humans, we sinners, are paying attention and listening. This evening's message is entitled, Godless Rhythm. And to have a godless rhythm is a life that is not at peace with God regardless of what it may tell itself. One well, person can say they have peace with God, but if they are again going against the word of God, they're not lining up with the will of God, then that's a bogus peace. You can tell yourself anything. Well, what, what does God say? And there's enough of the Bible that is very understandable, enough for us to come away with uh, this peace that he offers in the presence of a world that can often be very very much violent. But a heart out of rhythm is a serious condition. Anything out of rhythm is not working well. If your car's timing is not right, and it's spitting and it's making all these noises and it's hurting itself, it won't run the right way. Rhythm is a strong and a regular, repeated pattern of movement. My heart is supposed to have this with God. And even though my life may not match it, my heart, my understanding, my will, who I am, I get it with you, Lord. I know what you want. I can't get there all the time, but I know. And that, that's the rhythm God is looking for. And Saul, King Saul, if he ever had any rhythm with God, it was short-lived. And we are already just uh, no more than two years into his monarchy, and we find him uh, up to no good up to his stunts. And as you look at the life of Saul, you say to yourself, well, if you stick around long enough, you're going to meet people like Saul. Why a Jewish, why would a Jewish family name a son after this king is beyond me. You might as well, you know, name your child the devil. It's almost that bad. It's a, a, a terrible character in scripture, but so many lessons come from his life. And the only rhythm we find, the only harmony, is with his own self. Uh, in God's name, I should add that. He had a rhythm that was his own, but he used God's name to cover it. No interest in being in cadence with God. And neither in his, the way he moved about life, the way he thought, the way he behaved. He was an ungodly man. And this, this lack of rhythm... This godless rhythm, it uh, caused him to be a, a guy who messed up everything. I mean, everything he touched, it wasn't the Midas touch, it was the Saul touch. It would sour, it would die. No problem blaming others for his wrong. We're going to get this this evening. No intention of being corrected by a man or God. Oh, he might say it. He wouldn't do it. No desire to change. It's like he was satisfied with himself. 
No room for improvement with this character. In fact, when Saul wasn't home, everybody was happy. I don't want to be this kind of person. The flesh is personified in this man, and it is perfected unto the end in the result of his own self-destruction. His death was just untimely. It was not heroic. It was shameful. You think of characters such as Samson and Solomon. They were saved, and I believe you'll see both of them in heaven. But they wasted so much opportunity. So much was handed to them. Just talking with one of the pastors briefly tonight and just said, you know, some, some people grow up so nicely, just have such a nice upbringing, they don't know what they, they, they're missing. They don't know what really bad means. I didn't say it in these words. But we'd like to, what if we took, took you to some place like Laos or Cambodia and just stuck you there and said, hey, grow up here now. You'd appreciate what you have. You wish you saw this in Samson and Solomon. You wish they, there was more appreciation for what they had. Saul, he was a waste. I don't, I don't know that he was saved. Samson, a mighty man who fell to self-will and his sins. Solomon, a wealthy man, fell to the self-will. Saul was an ideal man. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Who could say, who, would, who could deny that this was the man that could lead the nation? And yet his self-will consumed him. What would these three men have been if they just trusted God more? Of the three, again, Saul is the worst. Each one had a magnificent beginning. And look what they did with it. And I read this and I say to myself, okay, what, what God has given me, what am I doing with it? I can tell you some, some of the things I'm doing with it. Sometimes I'm not satisfied. I don't, not that he hasn't given me more than I deserve, but I still want more. The flesh is messed up that way. So he takes steps to intercept that kind of thinking so it doesn't get out of control. And so with that overview of this man, let's look now at verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, we pause there. There's some difficulty concerning this opening sentence. Some words appear to be missing. When Saul reigned, how many years? One is really not accurate. It really doesn't throw anything off except the chronology. The Hebrew, closer to it, literally, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. He's probably in his 40s. We could say that because his son, Jonathan, is leading a battalion of men. In this chapter, we come to his leader. So some time has passed since uh, Saul had been uh, coronated king or crowned king and then uh, delivered uh, the, the Jews from the, the attackers that wanted to take their eyes out. Some time has passed. Verse 2. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Uh, verse 2, he now has, where we just read, a standing army of about 3,000 men. By today's standard, this is a regiment, an infantry regiment. It's not very many. It's a small, not, it's not considered an army or a division. 
But for the Jews, this was their first real this, their standing army. These men would be trained. They would be captains of tens and twenties and etc. However, whatever, however they broke it down. Saul kept two-thirds of these men with him, and the other third, a thousand men, a battalion size, he gave to his son to oversee. That's quite a responsibility. Getting a little bit ahead of myself, but can't fight the urge. Jonathan, Saul's son, is a heroic man, which just tells us you can, you can be born, you can be the son of a fool, and you can still be a hero. Go the other way, too. It always comes down to the individual. There's no getting away from this. This is why there is a throne of judgment in which each individual stands. This is why there's a beam of seat for the Christian. We have some say so in things that are about our lives. There are some things we don't. Well, anyway, Jonathan is old enough to command a battalion. It says the rest of the people he sent away every man to his tent. So that would be the reserve forces, the militia. They went back to farming. They weren't part of the regular army. But these 3,000, they remained away from their families and uh, formed this, this uh, military, which this chapter is going to expose. Not very, these guys were not very courageous. It doesn't say they were mighty men. Verse 3, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let... The Hebrews here. Well, this Jonathan is an aggressive commander, and he begins an uprising. Um, he, he just couldn't, he couldn't help himself. These Philistines don't belong here among us. They have taken from us the ability to fashion weapons and protect ourselves. Here we are armed with clubs and slings and arrows, but really no swords. And it just, it just irked him. So he gets an army. And he's he's likely training these men. So much is left out. And then he goes ahead and he launches an attack on the Philistine garrison. The garrison is there to keep the Jews in line. Lesson, again, you may be the son of a fool, but that does not mean that you will be a fool. You've got to say so. You have a say so in this matter. Or you can just be the fool too. You may be the son of wise parents, but that doesn't mean you're going to be wise. You've got to do your part. These, these, these kind of things, they either scare you into doing the right thing, they bounce off of you and you do nothing, or, or what? Fill in the blanks. Uh, all of us who are believers, we are still children. We're children of the Lord. What are we going to do with what God has said? You know, that's what God said to Moses. When he was raising up Moses to go deliver the Jews from Egypt there on Mount Sinai, and he says to him, what's that in your hand, Moses? What do you got? God was going to take what Moses held in his hand to show Moses that he could do a lot of things with that which he held, turned it into a serpent right before his eyes. And God is still saying to believers, what's that in your hand? It says here in verse 3, And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So Jonathan sets into motion Israel's deliverance from the Philistines while Saul toots his horn. That's the picture, is it not? Look again at the bottom of verse 3. And the Philistines heard of it. 
Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Yeah, but Jonathan is the one doing the stuff. He's the man of action. And he loves the Lord. And I feel defensive of these characters when some Bible commentators gang up on the wrong guy. Some gang up on Jonathan. Said that she, he should have sided with David and went off with David. Would never, never would have worked. He would always have been the man that is heir to the first throne, and it just would not have happened. But we'll get that much later. Verse 4 now. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. <laughs> so they're leaving Geba and um, Oh, I've already forgotten a few verses up where, where the uh, garrison of Saul was. Micmash, uh, how could you forget Micmash? Micmash, I was taking a bath late on a Saturday night. Uh, oh, that's not Micmash, it's Splish Splash. But anyway, back to this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know I should, I should cut a CD, or, but I, I'm not going to sign a contract. <laughs> where was I? Oh, Okay. So all Israel heard it and said, Saul had attacked the garrison. No, he did not. It's so typical. The report went out, and who's the headline on the marquee? Saul. And when the credits come up, it's just Saul. There's no supporting cast. Saul, that's his press release. Saul has attacked the garrison. He was nowhere near it. And it says in that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. You know, when you meet a guy like this in real life, they get away with so much. And you just, you know, when is this guy going to, when are people going to see through this punk? When are they going to see that this guy is not what he is? And you got to suffer them. Maybe somebody you work in a company and the, the kid, the, the owner's kid gets to be the boss. And he's a complete, just incompetent. And he's like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to quit the job. I can't, I can't take the guy anymore. Why can't anybody else see it? That's what Saul was. And I think Samuel saw it, and all he could do was say, Lord, why? Anyway, Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. Odious, I think it says in the old King James. <laughs> they have a way with words there. Uh, they, this was an enormous... Uh, group of people, these Philistines. They, they were really tough customers. They were not pushovers. And they, again, had iron weapons versus the wooden weapons of the, the Jews. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. We've covered Gilgal, its importance to the people several times. It would take several days for the militia to gather to Gilgal. And, you, you know, the bus drivers were still learning their routes and so they'd make a wrong turn. It would take time to get everybody there. Same with the Philistines, to put men on the field. I mean, to, to arm them, to feed them, to supply them. So there's this time here moving on, and this is part of the story. Because Samuel, he's in Ramah, 15 miles away. But he doesn't get to Gilgal right away, and that enters the story. Verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people in, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Aven. Well, what we have here is uh, the ability to communicate. 
Everybody is rallied. The chariots, the cavalry, the infantry, the archers, all with the latest weapons. And the Jews, there they are, a bunch of farmers, the militia, with their clubs and pitchforks. And uh, this doesn't seem like it's going to be a good fight for the Jews. But they, get, they rally anyway. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. <laughs> they saw the Philistines with their helmets on and their shiny buckles and everything, and they ran for their lives to hide wherever they could. Uh, this, would in, this is going to include Saul's, some of his 2,000. It doesn't appear anybody from Jonathan left. Why? Because Jonathan's leadership was such that it invited men to be men, to follow him. Whereas Saul, did, Saul had none of that. David took it to a whole other level. But uh, again, we'll, we'll get to that as we move through the Samuels. And then the people hid in caves and thickets. Uh, we all know what it's like to be terrorized. To suffer dismay. Here's a picture of it. So, so how could this help a Christian? Well, for me, I read this. I don't want to be one of these guys. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to be hacked to pieces on the battlefield either. But I, I don't want to hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. And we'll see that many of these men are the deserters of the 2,000. Saul will end up with 600. What happened to them? They didn't die on the battlefield. No, they ran away. Some crossed the Jordan into Gilead, became refugees, fleeing the enemy. And their fear becomes a taunt in the next chapter. The Philistines will taunt Jonathan and his armor bearer. Oh, you've come out. Look, the Jews have come out of their caves. And they wish. Jonathan's going to lay a beat down on them. They'll never, well, they won't live to remember. So anyway... God will turn that taunt in the 14th chapter into a victory. Verse 7 now. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Yeah. This is not an army of sheep led by a lion. This is an army of sheep led by a fool. And... Again, I, I don't want to be this person, even, even in make-believe. I, I don't want to, you know, if someone say, hey, we've got a part for you in the play. Would you mind playing Saul? You're handsome. Um, no, I would not like to play Saul. I just can't get into that character. But anyway, uh, here, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan. Uh, many of again fleeing for their lives, and Saul was still at Gilgal waiting for Samuel. This protocol was established earlier, even though the details aren't given to us; they're they're obvious. And all the people followed him, trembling, symbolic of the type of leader that Saul was and was not. Instead of again uh, inspiring courage, he drains it. What kind of leader is that? Just sucks the life out of the followers. There are too many men like that. Too many of them are like that. And yet people see him still. He's the king. He knows what he's doing. Well, the ones that fled didn't see it that way. But terror, terror characterized his reign. Whereas God 
and victory characterized David's reign. David got to the point where he said, I'm not going to go to the battlefield anymore. And, of course, he got in trouble when he did that. But that is, is the, the stark differences of the two kingdoms. Lesson, you can be a drain on your environment and those around you, or you can be a generator. Which will it be? You can walk into the room and just suck the life out of it, or you can just bring it in with you. David brought it in with him. When he had nothing to do, he wrote a psalm. <laughs> what to do? What to, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And it becomes a hit. So the lessons, again, abounding from the life of this man. I guess we should, you know, kind of shake his hand. Thanks, Saul. We wouldn't really know what dumb was had it not been for you. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't go over if the Lord were there. You'd not want to do it that way. <laughs> Just kind of, anyway, verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So uh, there are those good Bible teachers out there that believe this goes back to chapter 10 when Samuel tells Saul, uh, go to Gilgal and wait for me there. But that's two years ago. I, I don't think so. I think there's the independent events. And uh, my position is, and I, I don't believe I'm alone, but it was a general uh, gathering of the nation at Gilgal for war, and they knew the protocol laid down by Samson, likely since uh, Saul tooted his horn in verse 3, uh, counting from that day forward was the seven-day mark. And uh, because that would take time. It would take just weeks, days for everybody to get to Gilgal ready for war. Uh, verse, or continuing in verse 8, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. Well, the troops were losing confidence in Saul, so they were deserting. Increasingly so is the, is the feel of how it reads. And uh, they observed Saul's apprehensions and said, you know, we're better off without him. Samuel's delay did not make Samuel late. It was a delay. And we get to the New Testament, of course, we see Jesus use this to extract faith of those uh, that uh, were, were there to, to witness what he was doing. It was Samuel's prerogative as spiritual leader to be waited on, not in the sense of a servant you know, waiting on him, but he's the leader. And if he decides, I'm going to be late, the people subjected themselves to that because it was worth it, and it was, in the, it was worth it because it was in their interest. Go back and, uh, well, I'll just read 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is when Saul and his servant, looking for Saul's father's donkeys, or, you know, they came to the people, and we, we hear there's a man of God here, and this is what they say. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. And then it goes on, afterward those who are invited will eat. He has to bless the troops. Nobody's to move. They're to wait for Samuel. This was not something that was foreign to anyone. They understood this was the protocol. But Saul, Saul didn't like it. It pressed on his flesh to the point of rebellion. Saul was about Saul. He was now king. 
And if Samuel couldn't get there on time, he'd just have to take things, matters into his own hands. And that is precisely what he, is, did, he did. And the Holy Spirit says, class, I want you to watch and learn. This is not how to trust God. You must adhere to the protocols, the scriptures, the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances. And God was using this moment to expose Saul for who he was. A man out of rhythm with God. Because he didn't want to be. He wasn't lacking something, uh, innately so. Well, I guess we could say, let me say it a different way. If he was lacking anything, it was his own fault, which he would never admit. God is giving Saul every chance to trust God. If he's going to be successful as the king of the people of God, then he's going to have to work in rhythm with God. No, let's not do that. That would make, it's insane. You meet people and they have no logic and they're constantly getting in, in trouble and making a mess of things and causing everybody else to have to rally to help them out. And they can never say, did I do that? They never say, was it me? When the Lord said, one of you are going to betray me, is it I? That's what they all said. But there are those people that will never ask that question because they know the answer. They know it's them. He says, okay, if you know them, why don't you just change direction? Why don't you just stop hitting yourself on the head with the hammer? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It feels good. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, so the rest of us, what do we do? We attack in prayer on our knees by faith, no matter how long it takes. We're committed to that. We, you know, we, we read, I think it's Hamlet, screw your courage to its sticking place. And we're like, oh, yeah, screw your courage. Well, God says the same thing. He just says it just uh, his way, which is better. Verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered, <laughs> he offered the burnt offering. Sorry for the theatrics. <laughs> I just can't help it. I can see this guy's face and I just don't like him. It was not his place to act as leader over the priest. It was never his place to command the priesthood. They were separate entities. If God wanted the king and the priest to be the same entity, then he would have just made Samuel king. But Saul, no, not the deep meanings of God. He just wanted the rituals on the surface if it could manipulate the people. Just enough Bible to manipulate others. Just enough scripture verses to make others think, I am spiritual. And they can overlook the wrong I'm doing because they've just listened to what I've said. That's all. If you listen to Saul, bring the burnt offerings, the peace offerings here to me. You think, well, he's deep, he's spiritual. No, he's not. And he found after a while in his own thinking, being out of rhythm, that it was acceptable to disobey God and Samuel. After all, he wasn't struck with lightning that day. And he's going to eventually win the battle. Do you think at the end he's going to give that credit to anybody on the planet? No, nobody in the heavens either. But, but, if you... If you disobeyed Saul, if you dip your spear in honey just to get a little energy and you're his own son, he's going to kill you for it. I don't know why the people didn't say, what just happened here? How did we get this fool to be our king and do something about it? Samuel, you got to help. <laughs> it's crazy because he still happens to this day. 
So typical of Saul. Laws, laws were for others. They weren't for, for him. No, he was above the law. Just the little people. They are the one. Now, there is such thing as executive privilege. I mean, there are certain positions in life. They have to have certain wider margins to be able to function in their office. But that does not put them above the law. There are critical laws that are just, uh, they're, they're, they're adamant laws. They're hard as stone. They don't move. But Saul placing himself above God's priest revealed that he is unfit to be the king of God's people. Verse 10, now it happened as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Sammy, Sam, Samster, <laughs> how you been? We just finished the sacrifice, just relax. Lord bless you. <laughs> Again, you see, he lived out of rhythm with God. The man of God who is in tune with God, in harmony with God, he shows up, and you can just see the look on Samuel's face. And not as hard as Moses coming down the mountain, but it wasn't, a, hey, buddy. Lost rhythm, a serious thing, because Saul eventually became a full-blown savage. That's where this is going. It's like, well, he's only a degree off. Yes, but if he keeps going on that degree off, he's going to be way off. By the time he reaches his end. Samuel's delay evidently, well, I don't know about evidently, intentional or not, it flushed out Saul from his hiding place, his, his character, that is, who he really was. Uh, even in Christianity, we have, we have Christians that think that because they're saved and born again, they have these rights to come into God's house and sort of dictate policy. You don't. That would uh, that creates chaos and havoc. What happens when your way disagrees with ten others who just can't agree with themselves? You have this spastic machine, and not good for anybody. There is order in God's house, and there's to be order amongst God's people. And Saul just stepped out of that order again, verse eleven. And Samuel said, "What have you done?" And Saul said, <clears throat> "When I saw." that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, verse 12. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal, and I have not met the supplication to Yahweh, made the supplication to Yahweh. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. We'll take verse 11 first. So to Saul... Enough pressure was enough reason to abandon and to disobey. It won't be that way again. When, when Jonathan, his son, who didn't even know the, the order initially, uh, takes uh, honey in the middle of the fight, Saul was determined to kill that man. So if the situation changed in Saul's head, so could the commandments change. How convenient. If God takes too long to do a good thing, then who needs God? I can step in and do it myself. He is the do-it-yourself carnal man. And those out of rhythm with God will blame others for their own mistakes, their own disobedience, their own sin, some kind of way. They're going to blame somebody else. They will not admit that it is really they. And therefore, they can't be corrected, they can't be fixed. How do you argue with someone who insists that water is not wet? 
It's the end of the argument. There's nothing you can do for that person. They're not willing to be rational. They want to be treated with utmost respect. Uh, you don't love me. You know, you're not. You're mean to me. Well, just say water is wet. No. <laughs> so what can I do with you? The unwillingness to obey. It takes one a long way from God. Uh, it's, it creates a distance, separation from God. And it doesn't fix itself. The flesh never fixes itself, and it does not die a natural death. It requires constant and vicious retaliation. Never does Saul think as a man of God. Never do we find him thinking in such a... And Saul prayed unto the Lord and said... And it was like, boy, I love that. Nope. You'd have to wait for David to get something like that. Verse 13. Well, you get it from Samuel. Verse 12 now. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to Yahweh. Therefore, I felt compelled, offered a burnt offering. He was emotional. The emotions began to run the ship, and that brings shipwreck. So then I said, the Philistines will now come to me at Gilgal. So I better do this. Yeah, right. He wanted to have absolute absolute influence. What a perfect opportunity. If Samuel wasn't there, I can step in for Samuel. I can fill Samuel's sandals on the seashore. (laughs) Samuel's, okay. So, you should see how many things I don't say. (laughs) Saul wanted to be known. He's a great king and a great spiritual leader. And he got neither. Because he did it in his own strength. You know, lying, lying as, as he is right now. It cannot kill the truth. It only breaks the rhythm and takes away the peace. That's what it does. But the truth stays. Otherwise, there'd be no conviction. There'd be no guilt. And uh, he says, Then I said, The Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal. <clears throat> Rather than take responsibility for his actions. Instead of saying, Samuel, I just, you know, you delayed. I blew it. I'm, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You're right. I was wrong. Instead of doing that, he blames other people. Three groups get the blame. One stroke. The people, Samuel and the Philistines. They're all guilty, but I'm innocent because I am Saul. Say it with me. (laughs) Saul associates himself with the sin that is going on around him only by saying he came to the rescue with the sacrifice. That's the only association he's making with sin, that he is the cleanser. And I have not made supplication. He says, and I have not made supplication to Yahweh. Yeah, he did, but in the negative, through disobedience. He made contact with the face of God, but it was not the lifted countenance. It was the frown. And uh, likely there were priests there, other priests there involved in the offering, but it was his command and it was not his place to give that command. Uh, this is about, he, he should have obeyed Samuel in this matter, and he did not. The prophet priest was the one he was to listen to. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Was Samuel understanding? Samuel said, oh, well, why didn't you say so? Absolutely not. Samuel will not wait for this man to figure it out. He's going to make a pronouncement on him. And it won't be the last one. It gets worse. Imagine going to church and you get hit because, you know, by the sermon or just the material of the verses. 
You get singled out again and again and again because you won't change. Not because of any other, no one to blame. This is the case with Saul. Exodus 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We can't wait anymore. We've got to have gods. We've got to have something to pray to. We have the invisible God. No, no, we need something we can touch. You're dictating to God. And we think he should look like this. Have you ever seen him? No, but this is what he should look like. Don't you agree? Yep. And that's how the idolatry just kept going. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It would have been a dynasty. You were that close. Samuel says, You've done foolishly. This this is um, a, a tone that's not necessary. The words speak for themselves. You've done foolishly because it's God's word you broke. How foolish is that? Do I need to use inflection? Do I need to really say, you you idiot? No, I'll leave that for Pastor Rick to say so. (laughs) You kept not the commandment of God. Let him have it, Samuel. Tell him like it is. And uh, we all know what it's like to not be able to wait. But we have to be careful. Remember Abraham? He couldn't wait for a child. So he went with Hagar, and he created an Ishmael. And Ishmael's hand was against every man, and every man was against Israel. Every man's hand was against Ishmael. Not a good kid. In the end, he seems to be tolerable, but how many? How much trouble did he cause? Ruth chapter three, verse eighteen. Then she said, "This is that wise Naomi. Sit still, my daughter." Until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Our great Boaz is at work for us, our Lord Jesus. I love the way it reads. I didn't see this when we went through Ruth, but Ruth was uh, probably pacing. And Naomi says, sit still, my daughter. You're annoying me. (laughs) No, she doesn't say, but she says, sit still. You know, just stand still. See, God is in this. Naomi knew it. So after this rebuke, Saul's stupidity will intensify. And by the time we get to chapter 15, it's, just, it's all over the place. How can this be? This godless rhythm, refusing God's peace and dictating to God the terms of peace. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Yahweh has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. So this was pretty deep. None of this Saul could say, you know, we read it, we say, well, was Saul really guilty? Oh, he was over the top guilty. Samuel says, now your kingdom will not continue. You blew it. You ruined it. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his own heart in contrast to Saul whose heart was after his own heart. Saul's heart was after Saul's heart. Nobody else's. It is therefore clear that Saul ceased being a man after God's heart. It's a devastating rebuke. David wrote this in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for Yahweh. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He also brought me up out of the horrible pit in the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Saul would never live that, think it, approve it, want it. In fact, the man that wrote it, Saul would end up hating, hating to death. And uh, what is it about God's heart? The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. What is it about God's heart? It is love, the heart of love. David loved God. David knew God loved him. David also wrote about times when God would seem so far off. He would weep night and day. This just went on and on and on, and God would not answer. But God was shaping David. For what? To be the David we know. Who has not been blessed as a believer by the shepherd's psalm? And so, with as much intensity as a man can love God, David did. First Chronicles 29.2, Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. So David says to Solomon, here, here's the blueprints and here's the money. You build this. I won't be here to see it, but you build it. What an opportunity. And there are those that come across these words and they have a Jesus Christ that is obscured by their personal preferences as opposed to just simply receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. You receive Christ for who he is, you have a heart after God. You start objecting, hemming and hawing, kicking up the dirt, looking for ways to get away from God. I know, you know, when I was a boy, I, lo- I sure loved the Lord. I loved God so much. Those teen years got me, man. Whew. If it wasn't for mercy of God. It wasn't for mercy, the mercy of God. He says here, the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people. Samuel speaks of David's appointment in the present tense. As though it's already happened. Yahweh has commanded him to be commander over his people. David, he's out, you know, playing, you know, I don't know, Space Invader, Mario, whatever. I know. I don't know what the games are. I remember those. But anyway. Pac-Man was kind of fun, actually, for like the first five minutes. Then it was like, somebody go throw a ball? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So David's out with the sheep, killing bears and lions, messing with his sheep. He doesn't even know this is happening. Same with us. We don't know what's what's going to happen. We just want to be there to catch the ball if God should throw it in our direction. Verse 15. Then Samuel arose. Oh, pause there a minute. I just had a terrifying thought. At the rate we're going, will the next generation even know what a ball is? I mean, I've never seen one except on the screen. I'm not criticizing you. I'm exploring it with you. I am. Because I I know. All right. I, I know. The generation before me thought that we were wacky. Well, actually, they didn't. We were actually pretty cool in the 60s. We were just, man. Anyway. Verse 15, then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. You see, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, leaving Saul behind. I think 
You know, in my spot, Saul, Samuel, do you have to go? Can you stay another day? Remember, you know, Moses with Jethro? Not with Saul. Saul's glad to get rid of him. Whew, man, I don't have to be under that guy's eye anymore. Uh, the cat's away, I could play. The flesh. He shrugs his shoulders, ponders his possessions, and just picks up where he left off with whatever he has. Um, he is now preparing to go forward with battle, but he only has 600 men now, it says here at the bottom of verse 13, because the other 1,400 deserted him. They'll be back in chapter 14, that it will mention in verse 16. Now, <clears throat> Saul and Jonathan, his son, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Well, Michmash is where Saul was, and they came there looking for Saul. Battle is on. And again, there have been many sons of fools who proved themselves heroic. And it's up to the individual. Then the raiders, verse 17, came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned on to the road to Orpah, to the land of Shual. Verse 18, another company turned. You know, once you read those hard Jewish words, it makes even the English hard after. Because your tongue is just all over on one side of your head. So, so... The raiders came out, verse 17, of the camp of the Philistines. And Well, I read that. I'm not reading those Jewish words again. Another company, verse 18, turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned on the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. So the raiders or the destroyers, they, they're on ra these raiding parties. They're dispatched to harass and destroy whatever they could. And they were quite terrifying. Verse 19. Well, pause. Satan does this. He still sends out his three companies, his raiders, to ruin and to destroy and to harass. He still does this. You ever have like, a good day and all of a sudden, you know, the shadow of something bad comes up to just steal it. And that's those raiders. Verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. <clears throat> this is a parenthesis given to us, and a parenthesis means it's something important, not unimportant. You see a parenthesis when you're reading a book, you're tempted to say, oh, it's just a parenthesis. No, it's actually telling you something. This is an important part of the story. Well, the Jews, <clears throat> um, not uncommon in the ancient world. You know, it's said that the Japanese... They would not, uh, uh, in the 18th uh, century or so, uh, allow the Okinawans to have anything metal. They had like a town knife that was, you know, tied on and guarded in, in the villages. Uh, so not a new thing to, to sort of uh, a disarmament of the people. They would not allow them to develop any military technology. To weaponize, verse 20, but all Israel would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his maddox, axe, sickle. And the charge of the sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the maddox, the forks, the axes, and to set points of the goads. So the blacksmiths were all on, in Philistine territory. The, the, uh, the amount was uh, it's said to be expensive. They were, it would impoverish them. I don't have that kind of money. Well, keep you off balance, won't it? Um, the Philistines were pretty cruel. Almost done. 
verse 22. So it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. So the only people with swords mentioned here, Saul and, and Jonathan, they had swords, but everybody else <clears throat> uh, makeshift weapons. Verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Uh, this is all going to change. Again, because of the heroic son, Jonathan, who is just a great Bible character, a great man, and a man of God. And we'll get this in chapter 14, where he's sort of like, you know, something's got to give. I'm going to go pick a fight with these boys. And if God is with us, then... We, uh, we're going to do this. If God is not with us, then it won't happen. So we'll get that in the next chapter. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, uh, may, we, may those of us familiar with the lessons from this story who have been trying to implement them, them over the years, may we continue. May, uh, if there are any that these are new discoveries. May they act upon it, not shrug their shoulders and turn their back the other way. We ask that you would uh, bless us through these holidays with family and friends. May it be edifying, our conversation, our interactions. May you be glorified in all things. We love and worship you, and we ask that you get us home safely tonight. In Jesus' name.